on TV, online and on your smartphone. This is Ticken News. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd and you're watching Talkie Book and today we're very lucky to be joined by Anthony Kavanagh from Chester Asset Management. Anthony, first time on the show and I know it's reporting season, so thanks very much for making the time. Thanks for having me on, mate. It is a busy time, but always got time for you. Now, before we get into your stock, maybe just give us a brief overview of Chester Asset Management and how you guys look to, to allocate capital. Yeah, sure. So Chester Asset Management, we've been around since 2017, founded by Rob Tucker and myself. Um, Luke Howard joined us a year later, so there was initially three of us. We've, we've um, recently hired a fourth employee member and we've got a fifth joining us a couple of months after that. So a five-man team now. So I guess the, the, the process with Chester, for want of a better terminology, is we're a GARP type fund, growth at a reasonable price. Um, without going into the whole detail, we invest in kind of a pyramid format, which is a bit different than some others in the market, in that we allocate approximately two thirds of our allocation to what we would define as predictables or, or industrial types of, of stocks with a bit of a quality bend, but, but obviously with that, that GARP bias in mind. And then probably 25%, up to 25% of the portfolio invest in cyclicals. Um, that could be you know, your, your standard commodities to energy to, to retail. And then up to 10% of the portfolios in defence companies, which we define as cash and, and gold, stuff that's non-correlated to the market. So that's Chester in a nutshell, and, and we've, we've, we've grown quite nicely since 2017, so happy to still be kicking. And what stock did you want to talk about today? So today I've brought you Light and Wonder. Um, it's a bit different to the normal type of stock. I should have described in the process that Chester, we're kind of um, usually going for unappreciated and un, 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 underloved stocks, I should say. I would say that Light and Wonder doesn't necessarily fit that bill in the Australian market. Um, why we still think there's opportunity there though is it's almost a bit like the ResMed thesis like I was describing to you earlier in the fact that I think the Australian market thinks a bit differently to the US guys, particularly when it comes to gaming machines and Aristocrat's probably one of the key reasons for that different thinking. Um, if you go back to ResMed a few months ago when it was trading at $22, $23 a share, every person I spoke to in, in the Australian market was basically buying ResMed and, and, and owned ResMed. Now, I described it as, I guess, the most consensus contrarian trade around that I've ever seen. Um, doesn't mean it was the wrong trade, though. So I would say that it's almost the, the Australian investor versus the US investor with light and wonder in that most of the Australian market does seem bullish on the name. Um, and we're, we're positively predisposed to the name. We've been there since July um, last year, and, and they listed it in May. So there is still a bit of a learning exercise going on in the Australian market. Um, but yeah, it's one that we're extremely excited about. And it's dual listing, so it's a CDI. For investors that haven't seen that before, is that material, or, or how does that structure differ oh, from it, a traditional Aussie equity? It is a bit different in the fact that the primary listing is in the US, so a lot of the flow happens in the US. And, and when it first came to the Australian market, there was very limited volume that was actually sitting here in Australia. So what you actually need to do is actually pull the stock from the US and convert it to that CDI listing in Australia. And, and you know, you need your brokers to do that for you. But I think since they listed with, you know, limited um, volume, I think there's now almost one and a half million worth of CDI on the Australian market. And so now it's trading like a normal stock and it's recently entered the, the 200. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of interest in the name and a lot of flow now. Um, and let's give it, give, they've got three business units. Give us an overview of, of what the difference units do and maybe start with, with land-based gaming. Yeah, sure. So 
Just a bit of background. So if you go back to 2019, it's probably worth making the point that they were a company called Cygames. And at the time, they had net debt of about six and a half times. So, you know, in any stretch of the imagination, even the US that are a bit more liberal around their balance sheets, that's an overstretched balance sheet. So at the time, they had five different business units. So at that time, they, they brought in advisors, Jamie O'Dell and Tony Consaris, who was the ex-CFO and the ex-MD of, of Aristocrat. And they had to basically rationalise their business down to three business units. So those three that you find today, as you said, starts with, with land-based gaming. But the two that they, they divested were lotteries and they divested an, an online sports betting business. So that basically gave them the ability to clean up their balance sheet and now be left with a core business unit of three um, businesses, the first of which, as you said, is land-based gaming. So land-based gaming is basically your poker machines is, is the first part of it. Now, there's two different forms of, of I guess, commercialisation models with those machines. There's outright sales, which the Australian market is a good example of a market that's completely outright sales-based. And there's um, gaming operations. So that's basically you um, lease your machine to a casino um, in the fact that you put it on the floor and you collect uh, a fee per day from that machine. So it's a capital-like model for the casinos, but the more um, quality you have in your machines, the more your machine will be, I guess, destined towards that, that leasing model. And that's kind of something that Aristocrat put in place to basically extract as much longer-term rent out of the machines as what you possibly can. Because you think about a commercialisation model, if you're selling one machine, you're getting your, your, your hit up front, but you're not getting the trail from what that machine can deliver. If you've got the machine out in the, out on the floor, you can continue to collect a revenue from it, and it's it's a lot better revenue stream for the long-term sustainability of that business. So those are two of the key components of that that land-based um, part of the business. There's also two other smaller parts that are worth talking about. There's a systems part of the business, which basically monitoring systems for all the different casinos. Um, so it's you know like some of the software and, and systems to basically monitor people on the gaming floor. And then there's a tables component, which is basically like every time you go into a casino, you see the tables. They are one of the, well, they've got 80% of the outright sales market of those, those tables and all the associated products like the chips and stuff associated with them. So that's, so that's your land-based part. And the skill, I guess, from Light and Wonders perspective is just how much fun the game is to play. That's their challenge. Basically, yeah, it's creating the best math and making the, the game, I guess, the most addictive as, as it possibly can be. And is R&D a, a big component of that? Yeah, it is. So... And that's part of when I talked about the history of the business in 2019, when you got six and a half times net debt to EBITDA, which actually got to 10 times during COVID, you don't really have any ability to invest in the business. And this is the same with almost any business. When you create the situation where your balance sheet is strong and you're starting to generate momentum with your revenue line, it gives you that ability to invest in R&D like a flywheel effect. So when um, Jamie and, and Tony came in and were advising Psych Games, one of the key things they said is like, once your balance sheet is cleaned up, you need to make sure you have that ongoing investment into you know, your R&D of the business. And so they've set a target of about 10% in R&D. 10% of revenue. 10% of revenue, correct. So before that, there was limited investment going on. That 10% of revenue enables you to go out and hire the best guys in the market, which is what they've done. They hired a guy called Ted Haas um, and, and Yannis Sombanini from um, Aristocrat. Flows off the tongue. Flows off the tongue. Yeah, I shouldn't, shouldn't have even tried to say it, to be honest. <laughs> um, and then they hired Emma Charles, who was basically 2IC for the Dragon Link game at Aristocrat, and they put him in their studios and, and gave him basically time to go and develop these machines. And having that ability to invest in R&D or D&D and the talent is then what creates the best games. And you give these guys time, they're like, for one of a better terminology, Bill Beeman would always say this about the mining contractors, it's your Messi's and Ronaldo's of the gaming gaming industry, right? These guys, they're the ones that get up and win the awards. They're the guys who are getting paid millions of dollars a year. 
they're the guys who've got the egos that want the best machines out on the floor and, and they're driven to basically create these titles. So back in you know, 2020, 21, when they started investing in those studios, that started to create, I guess, the ability to then create the best machines that can then increase the rat rot sales, which then flows into more revenue, which flows into more R&D, which flows into more investment, that, that flywheel effect. And talk to us about the, the SciPlay business unit. Yeah, so the SciPlay is their second business unit. So for want of a better um, description, it's probably you, you open up your phone and you go on Apple Play um, and you, you open up the App Store, they've got apps. So basically, fake money gaming, um, yeah. you know, titles that you might be familiar with. I don't play them myself personally, but Monopoly is one, one name. Um, basically, uh, you basically generate a fee per day. So you monetize in-game, um, people download it for, for limited fee. Um, sometimes you can pay for some of these, but then you can collect tokens and exchange them for all types of goods. But yeah, people actually pay money in-game to enhance the experience inside the game. So um, SciPlay, they recently went to 100% of that um, uh, segment from like 81%. So they acquired the minority interest that only happened just recently. That basically gives them the ability to utilise the cash that's sitting within that segment, but also make 100% the decision within that business. So what they can do effectively, when I talk about that D&D business spending, without the ability to have a digital portal um, as an outlet for your games, you previously would have had to basically design and develop a machine, um, say Frankenstein's, which is a recent game that they've made, and just throw it out onto onto the market as a box if it failed, you've then yeah. um, spent all that money on the design, the manufacture of that machine, and then you've ended up with a loss-making machine. Going forward, with ha- only 100% of SciPlay, you can then test out the games that you're going to develop as a, a land-based game in that format and see what resonates with the users. And within a matter of days, if not weeks, you can then test, you know, is that certain, like, um, you know, special uh, feature resonating with the customers? Is it creating longer-term gameplay? Um, and then you can tweak things that aren't working or are working to improve the performance of that game and see in real time how it's performing before you have to outlay the capital developing a hard box or a land-based based product. So it's a, it's a really unique feature and it's something the Aristocrat kind of develops through their own um, portfolio of, of, of assets um, that Jamie's kind of brought to the table and um, we're seeing it develop further with, with Light and & Wonder. And, and iGaming adds another another lever to that piece as well. Yeah, so talk me through the contrast between iGaming, the, their third business unit, and the SciPlay business unit. Yeah, it can get a bit confusing because you're talking about one digital, one um, you know digital as well, but one's real money gaming. Yeah. So iGaming is basically effectively, instead of it being you know playing for tokens and exchanging them in for something else, you're actually outlaying real money. So if you look at the success, and this is probably a forgotten story now, but points bet, you know, all the rage was how quickly the US was going to penetrate online sports betting. So online sports betting went from, you know, legal in zero states to, you know, originally um, in New Jersey and then it penetrated the rest of of the US. Um, iGaming is following a similar model. So at the moment there's 38 states that that are legalised for iGaming, for online sports betting in the US and there's only seven or eight states that are legalised for iGaming. And, and the reason why it gets legalised in these states is they're short on, on, on revenue, basically. Mm. Like, a lot of these states are struggling post-COVID. Um, they want ways to generate tax revenues, and um, iGaming is a perfect way to do it. I think I read a stat that um, the revenue generated from playing iGaming, the GGR on that, is three times more effective than the revenue generated from online sports betting. So, so that you are starting to see a lot of the states that, that were the early adopters for um, online sports betting um, 
you know, go to that iGaming model. So, so Light & Wonder's position in the space, they are the early leader. They are the number one market um, participant. They own a, they've got about 13% share of the iGaming market. And for one of a better um, analogy, it's probably like a Netflix type of model where they've got the platform similar to Netflix. They've got their own content similar, similar to Netflix, how they create their own movies. Um, you know, and similar to Netflix, if they want their movie to be watched the most or, or their game played the most, they give it the highest ratings and put it up to the top of the list. Um, but they just collect a cut of revenue for people that play on those games um, and white label that product. Um, yeah, basically. We'll be back with more Talkie Book after this short break. On TV, online, and on your smartphone, this is Ticker News. We're here with Anthony Kavanagh from Chester Asset Management, and this is Talkie Book. Anthony, we're talking a bit about um, the R&D spend and the SciPlay business unit for Light and Wonder, yep. and just what role that plays in in them, I guess, battle testing games. Also interested to to note the view that Australia is a bit of a a fertile ground to trial games before taking them overseas. What role does Australian market have for Light and Wonder before moving those games potentially to the bigger US market? You're basically stealing my, my thunder here, mate. But, <laughs> and apologies for the first half. Apparently we're going longer than most people go on the show. But no, That's all very good stuff. We're happy um, with it. So if you think about Australia, and particularly the New South Wales and the Queensland market, what the game developers often do, and, and it was probably more of a feature before you had that digital outlet that I described earlier, but it's still a key feature of the market, is that you trial, if you're aristocrat, you used to trial the games in New South Wales and Queensland, and the games that were most successful, you then take out to the US market, and you'd already have a pretty good feel for how successful they might be or what's been working with those games from how they've gone in the Australian market. So all the analysts used to tell me when I used to cover Aristocrat, you know, early days was like, you need to be on top of the New South Wales and Queensland ship share to understand the dynamics of what that's going to translate to for the North American market. So when Aristocrat first started cracking the market, they went from a number four to number one player. The early indications that you saw were in the New South Wales market where you started to see Lightning Link start to pick up material market share. So it's really important um, in terms of the long-term future in the North American market. Um, and we've seen Aristocrat hold 70% market share literally for the 10 years up to 2020. I might have my numbers off a bit, but so up to 2020, Aristocrat was sitting at about 70% market share. And at the time, this is when uh, Light and Wonder kind of re-geared the balance sheet and changed, I guess, some of the elements of their strategy and even changed their name from Games to Light and Wonder. They were sitting at like single digits market share. So if you remember what we were talking about earlier when they started investing in R&D and bringing on all those content creators, they then started to develop better and better games. Um, and their, their go-to-market strategy started to improve with a bit, a bit of confidence from the guys that they brought across from Aristocrat, something like 75 management um, employees that came from Aristocrat and now Light & Wonders exec team. So if you think about what that means, and you can see the early stats in New South Wales and Queensland, we saw in 2020 that Light & Wonder had single digits and Aristocrat had 70%. You go over the next three years and almost consistently every three to six months, you'd start to see Light and Wonder start to increase in that market share. And so over that period in 2021, I think they probably averaged about you know 10 to 15% market share in the Australian market and Aristocrat had gone from 70 to 65. In 2022, it went from kind of 15 to 20%. 2023 now, you're starting to see it tick up to closer towards 30% market share from single digits three years ago. So we're starting to see that as a really strong early indication of what might be achievable in the US market as some of these games start to penetrate. And a lot of that has come from success from um, a product called Dragon Train. So Dragon Train is basically like, a, a, it's almost a rip-off of Dragon Link that um, 
aristocrat had. You know, they, they took the second in charge who developed Dragon Linked Aristocrat, brought her across to, um, to Light and Wonder. And this game hasn't yet launched in the US, but we've started to see Light and Wonder go from zero out of 25 games in the top performing games, um, this is in the New South Wales market, to now holding the top four spots in the New South Wales market. And those four machines are all Dragon Train machines, just different variations of that game. So we're looking at that as kind of an early indication as to what might actually success look like for Light and Wonder in the North American market as that product gets commercialised. And we're expecting that probably the next couple of months. And you've sort of answered my question here already, but just to dig a little bit deeper on it, we've spoken about Aristocrat Leisure a bit. They're clearly a dominant market leader. And market leaders, particularly in technology, have been pretty hard to displace. What gives you some confidence that that Light and Runner are going to be able to do that or at least grab enough market share that that it's going to make the investment worthwhile for you? For starters, the market is bigger than just Aristocrat and Light and Wonder. So each of those in the US market has about 25%, let's say, for for round numbers. Um, And... You know, IGT has a 30% market share and there's Konami and there's every and there's a whole bunch of other smaller players that can, you can also chip market share away from. Yeah. So both Aristocrat and Light Wonder can exist and, and acquire market share at the same time. Um, so I'm not to say that, you know, Aristocrat's going to die a slow death or anything like that. Um, but some of those other companies are a bit distracted. So IGT is going through a strategic review at the moment. And I'm not quite sure where that's at, but I'm not sure if they're spending the same amount on, on D&D as what Light and Wonder are. You know, some of the smaller players, Every and Konami, um, you know, they've got a lot smaller um, R&D budgets as a function of their, you know, revenue not being quite as, as large as Light & Wonder. So over a long period of time, maybe Light & Wonder continues to chip away market share from them. But, um, you know, if you look at the Australian market, Aristocrat, I said, went from 70 down to, to, to around 35 40% at the last read. Um, can you read a huge amount into that? Maybe. Um, but Light and Wonder, um, sorry, Aristocrat probably more focused on some US games at the moment. So their crack game at the moment is a game called NFL. Um, obviously, that's not necessarily an Australian type of game. So um, they're seeing success from that game in the US market. And I've heard mixed reviews about that machine. But, um, you know, they're focused on that in the North American market. And that's probably going to see them still continue to perform well, despite them losing ship share in Australia. Well, Anthony, as always, there's not many that uh, can tell a narrative and, and articulate an investment thesis better than you. So thanks very much for, for making yeah. a talkie book debut. We haven't even started talking about valuation. <laughs> so before, we, before we finish, mate, I've got to, I've got to mention the fact that a valuation for Light Wonder is about 170 bucks a share and our, our valuation for Riskrat just for completeness is $43 a share. So we see still extreme upside in Light Wonder, at least 30% upside from where we are today. Um, you know, maybe not necessarily this result coming up in... in um, I think it's the 27th of February, US or 28th of Feb. There's a few question marks around this, the, the selling in Australia because there, from my understanding is that there was inventory stockouts in December, so maybe the result won't be as good in this quarter as what we would have hoped. Um, but going into 2024, we still see them delivering $1.3 billion in EBITDA and the market's at about $1.2. And I should have said this earlier, but they've got a target in 2025 of $1.4 billion US EBITDA. And, we think that's achievable. I think the market's still somewhat doubting that. Consensus for sell side is, is around 1.3. But if you think about what Aristocrat's currently trading on, on our numbers, it's 12.5 times EBITDA. We've got Light and Wonder on 8.5 times EBITDA. If, and this is you know one of the most obvious sell side brokes I've ever heard, and I've heard it from a few of the sell side, if you put Light and Wonder on the same multiple that Aristocrat is on one year forward, you can quite easily see a valuation over 200 bucks a share Australian. We're, you know, as we record this day, about $135. So, There is still a fair bit of momentum with Light and Wonder as we see it today.
You'll have a job at Baron Joey waiting for you if the funds management doesn't work out. See how we go, skill. mate. And if ever you want to present, I'm more than happy to be the host when you want to present no, your stock for us, Chris. I'd much prefer to have you answering the questions. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Awesome. Easy.